Welcome to Climate History, the podcast that explores what the past can tell us about the present and the future of climate change. I'm Emma Mosswild, PhD student in environmental history at Georgetown University. And I'm Dagmar de Groot, Associate Professor of Environmental History at Georgetown. I'd like to begin by thanking Rob Christensen, one of our amazing PhD candidates at Georgetown, for helping us with our audio for this episode. We actually anticipate that from now on our audio will be even better than what we've managed so far. Rob's dissertation looks at indigenous people, environmental change, and historical epidemiology, and it's centered around the late 19th century campaign of the desert in Argentina. And today we're interviewing Joseph Manning, the William K. and Marilyn Milton Simpson Professor of Classics and Professor of History at Yale University. He's one of the world's leading historians of the ancient world and now one of the world's leading climate historians too. He's the author of three books and a series of articles that have at times captured international headlines. He's working on what promises to be a groundbreaking book on climate change in the ancient world. So uh, thank you, Professor Manning, for joining us today. Oh, it's a great pleasure to be with you guys. So, uh, tell, tell us a little bit about yourself, how, how you ended up as uh, one of the leading historians uh, of the ancient world. What was your journey to Yale? It's a lot to, my journey to Yale is a long one <laughs> um, and uh, very uh, unexpected, as, as careers often are, I think. Uh, so it was a boyhood interest that I couldn't shake. I was 10 years old. I went home to my parents, having heard a slideshow, um, and would, that would have been, what, sixth grade, maybe, um, in suburban Chicago. Um, kind of the rival kid gave a slideshow on ancient Egypt, and I thought, well, I'm, you know, I'm better than that kid. Um, <laughs> and I, so I read up on Egypt, and I went home, and I declared to my parents I'm going to be an Egyptologist when I grow up. <laughs> and they said, okay, kid. Um, and I, I, I stuck with it. You know, I, I tried to shake it uh, in high school. It, it was so nerdy sounding, you know. Um, and in college, I uh, um, tried to shake it really hard. My first declared major was biophysics, believe it or not. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> uh, but I always, I always came back to ancient history and to Egypt, and that's what I uh, did my graduate work in. Um, I did something much more general in, in college. Um, in history and history of art architecture, um, just to broaden out. But I ended up at the University of Chicago at the Oriental Institute doing Egyptology in graduate school um, with no idea what I was going to do with it. Um, even back then, you know, everyone said, you'll never get a job. Um, it's a waste of time. Don't do it. Even the professors at the, in the department were saying that to me as I was contemplating coming there. So, um, but I wanted to study it whatever happened with the career. Um, and one thing led to another, I think. Uh, I have an interest in ancient history much more broader than um, what Egyptology does and, and the languages that you need, of course, the skill sets you need, um, some of the skill sets you need. Um, I went off to Cambridge after my qualifying exams to do ancient history for a year. Um, that was a golden age of ancient history at Cambridge in the mid to late 80s. There were a lot of great postdocs there and graduate students, and I hung out with them and essentially did almost a second degree sitting in the college pubs at night after seminars, this very lively culture at, at Cambridge, you know, seminars, and then you hit a college pub and you are there until it closes discussing 
Um, and I learned uh, a huge amount about ancient history um, and classics and, and how to do ancient history, I think, from a very sophisticated group of people, um, most of whom are uh, prominent uh, right now um, and, and good friends. So that was a good, a good network. And I came back to Chicago all sort of keen on doing ancient history with the Egyptian material, which is not so common at Chicago to do. Um, much more conservative place, much more philologically oriented. Anyway, I knew what I wanted to do from then. Um, basically, um, what I'm doing now is, uh, and how I got to Yale is a, a long and winding path. If you want to tell it, um, yeah, that uh, sounds well, great. Yeah, well, you know, it's, a, um, it's one of these things where um, I've been really, really fortunate and lucky. Um, at the same time, inside, you know, always feeling I'm doing what I was meant to be doing um, and just sort of dumb luck proceeding, I, I would say. So um, I ended up uh, starting my career at Princeton on a really great tenure track job there um, in classics, which was kind of unanticipated coming out of a Near Eastern language um, program. But I got a great job in classics in ancient history at Princeton. And then um, one of my Cambridge contacts, who became a really good friend, hired me at Stanford um, in ancient history there. Uh, much freer place, much more uh, kind of, um, for me, um, a place to kind of learn a lot of things like social sciences um, that I did a lot, a lot of economic history at Stanford, learned a lot there. And, uh, and then, you know, the Yale job came up. Now it's 12 years. I was at Stanford 12 years. Now I've been at Yale 12 years. Incredible. Um, this, this post came up. It w I never thought I'd come back east, but it was intriguing because um, Yale is a place that has a great ancient history tradition. Uh, Michael Rostovseth uh, was here for a long time, who's a great hero of mine in, in Hellenistic um, history, which is my sp uh, special um, field of historical research. Um, so it was a nice opportunity, um, I thought, to come and, and, and try to uh, build an interesting program here, given all the resources um, here, which is uh, all the, the museum material, a uh, great papyrus collection and so on, uh, a great library. That all sounded sort of, uh, sort of um, good to me um, to move. Um, and so I've lucked out <laughs> several times in an unanticipated way. Um, so a long and winding path. Um, and then, you know, doing the climate work we're doing is uh, even a greater surprise, I would say to me. <laughs> so, so before we get to that, I, I want to quickly ask, uh, what is it about the Hellenistic world, and I guess especially uh, Ptolemaic Egypt, that yeah. most captivates you? Gosh, I mean, everything. You know, it's, it seems like a very specialized field, um, Hellenistic Egypt um, and papyrology, the, the technical uh, base of much of the work, which is reading Greek and Egyptian language documents on papyrus. Um, so this goes back to a childhood thing. I was... I sound like such a nerd. I thought I was a cool kid, but maybe not. Um, and I was a member of the Ordinal Institute as a kid, and I dragged my parents to a member's day down there when I was 12 or 13. And I went into an office of a very kind elderly professor, George Hughes, one of the, the doyens of uh, Egyptian papyrology. It's a great, kindly old man who had all these ancient papyrus sitting at his desk. Um, and he showed me one. Uh, it was a, a, I think it was a lease of a house. Um, and very detailed record, and I couldn't believe it. It sounded like a modern document. It just opened up this world to me that stuck with me um, ever since. And this is the beauty of um, this period in Egypt, like no other place in the Western world 
we have documents in the thousands that are specific, that are detailed records of families and individuals making contracts, marriage contracts, the sales of land, um, leases. We don't have this from anywhere else in the, in the ancient world, at least the ancient Western world in such um, numbers. So once that, I had that in the back of my mind, there was no turning back because it was such a rich field to do actual historical work in that you can't do um, too many other places um, anywhere. Um, the, you know, the detailed record of daily life um, is just spectacular. So once you get hooked on that um, from this period, and this is the Hellenistic period is the beginning of when we have documentation. We don't have a lot from um, earlier in Egypt. We have bits and pieces, but not in the tens of thousands that we do for Ptolemaic Egypt and then Roman Egypt, um, even more so. Uh, so it's an attractive period. And of course, you have characters like Cleopatra who um, pop up that are, that are pretty interesting as well. So it's an interesting combination of, of uh, documentation um, in, in an important place, um, I think, um, in a place that sometimes gets ignored because it's Egypt's this exceptional place. It's a really weird place. And so either you're a specialist in it or you can ignore it if you're in other parts of the classical world. That's sort of the cartoon version of where Egypt fits, which is a bit unfair, I always think. Um, so, um, I'm, I'm rather, uh, attached to it, the material, even though now I'm doing much more global kind of work, it's still kind of the base of, of what I'm interested in because it's very attractive material and important material. I, I don't know if I told you this, but, uh, I was actually interested in classics before I was interested in more recent history yeah. and, 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 uh, yeah. and, and debating actually going into a graduate degree in classics. And, uh, I didn't know that. And, and what always got me about it was just like this idea that there's this incredibly sophisticated world, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, thousands of years ago, you mm -hmm. see these people anticipating so much of what we do today yeah. with, in many cases, yeah. similar kind of complexity of thought and economic yeah. structures and, and, and all yeah. this stuff. It's kind of mind-blowing to me. Um, and, of yep. course, they had to grapple with some of the same challenges um as your work kind of exposes right so so maybe that's a segue into our next question which is uh, uh what attracted you to the history of the ancient environment um especially uh, climate change yeah so i've got i've fallen into the field uh to be honest as kind of a kind of an amateur coming out of nowhere in a sense although the first book that i read in the first week of graduate school sitting in regenstein library on the fifth floor at the University of Chicago was this little tiny book that was kind of an optional reading in an introduction to archaeology course by Carl Butzer called Early Hydraulic Civilization um, in Egypt from 1976. Um, and it opened, again, I'm kind of a materialist, um, I guess, and it opened up this world to me that I never thought this, this was ancient Egypt. You know, I thought it was about tombs and, and pharaohs and and so on. But this was um, kind of the bait, the material basis of how life works in Egypt from the Neolithic until the high dam at Aswan was built, basically flood recession, agriculture, irrigation systems, the annual rhythm of the, of the year based on um, what the Nile River is doing, what kind of crops are grown, when and where and so on. And it, it kind of blew me away. It always stuck with me. And this is the pioneer, Carl Butzer, of course, in geoarchaeology, as it's now called. Um, and it's an amazing book with no data in it, mind you, from 1976. Not, you know, no climate environmental data really some some uh, river cores and so on but not the kind of stuff that we have now but it was anticipating so much of what we can know uh, about in um, in Egypt 
And so that stuck with me always in the back of my mind. Um, and then, uh, you know, the story about our work uh, more recently, again, to build on the theme, it's kind of, um, it's sort of luck and happenstance, um, serendipity. And I think most of my best work, I'm not sure it's good or bad, <laughs> most of my best work, work, I think so far has been serendipitous work that uh, just sort of by accident, um, interested in what's happening now with uh, paleoclimatology. Um, what, six or seven years ago, I decided my, for myself, I needed to learn something about it, what was going on, because I knew from the view off the side of my eye that there was a lot going on that I wanted to try to get on top of. Um, how do you do that? Well, you invite famous people in to give lectures. You have a working group, which is um, what I formed here. You meet a really uh, brilliant postdoc, uh, Frank Ludlow, who's now in Dublin, who happened to be at Yale, who, uh, to whom I owe almost everything about, about our work, really, who opened up this world to me. Um, and that was sort of the basis of it, is just sort of learning about what's happening in paleoclimatology. Um, and we were sitting around after dinner one night uh, in New Haven at my favorite restaurant um, after a talk, just chit-chatting about what we can know. Um, and I was working on uh, ancient uh, revolts. Um, and they're well documented, a series of uprisings in Egypt in the Ptolemaic period. Well known. What's the cause of them? No one really knew. People had guesses. I always thought there was something to do with the Nile River, but you can't see it in the documents. Well, Frank ended up showing me a, a working paper um, or a preprint of a paper that became this famous article by Michael Siegel et al. in Nature in 2015 on the re- calibration of volcanic eruptions and ice cores back to 500 BC. And my mind literally exploded <laughs> when I saw the volcanic peaks because every single one I thought was a peak, uh, was a period of social unrest. So just, that, to, just, just to clarify, so now with this yeah. paper, we can kind of time these volcanic eruptions and the resulting climatic cooling accurately really for the first time going about 2500 years back in time yeah that yeah that's right and, and so ice cores as you know um go back to the 1950s nothing new there but the chronology was off um by eight or nine years kind of systematically so even if you were a very trendy historian thinking ice cores had something to tell you as an ancient historian you know um you'd be you couldn't see anything because it was off by eight or nine years so nothing lined up. What that article in 2015 did is line up um, things beautifully to the historical record, um, unintentionally um, by these guys. But the brilliance of the article, one of the brilliant parts of the article is they decided to go back 2,500 years, <laughs> not 2,000 years. And so much of climate data is 2K, 2,000 years, right? Just because it's a nice round number. But that excludes my period, <laughs> the last four centuries BC. That nature paper goes back to 500 BC. It, it opened up. It opened up everything for me. Um, again, I'm not sure that's serendipitous. Um, I think it's the brilliance of Michael Siegel um, and Frank Ludlow and others saying, "Well, let's go back a little bit further because we can. We can go back to 500 B BC with pretty uh, high resolution. So let's just do that." And that opens up, I think, a lot of potentially important research. It's interesting to hear about how you've arrived at this. Um, maybe a little bit unlikely or maybe serendipitous convergence of research interests, ancient history, economic history, paleoclimatology. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about 
why you think it's important to tell stories that connect past climate change to economic history and social history and, and the, the things that you were working on sort of pre this exciting post dinner uh, conversation. Yeah, so uh, it's a nice question to, to, to think about. Um, really, I think for the first time, so ancient historians, I'm gonna get a lot of email probably. Um, ancient history tends to be political history. Uh, it tends to be based on written sources, either literary sources from the classical world or even documents from Egypt or inscriptions from somewhere. This is static information. You really can't tell change over time or any kind of dynamic story from these kind of records, not really. Um, but if your history is about explaining change over time, in my view, what the paleoclimate record does, it doesn't solve everything for sure, but what it does is give us a chance at looking at uh, society in a dynamic way, I think for the first time, and that is hugely exciting. Um, that's where the challenges lie, um, and that's where controversy lies, but that's where also the good stories, I think, lie. Um, not that climate solves everything or that it is everything, but it gives us a window onto looking at human societies in motion a little bit. In my period, I think for the first time, it's not just politics and politics all the time. You can look at human societies um, in a much more holistic way. You know, going back to what the Annalise, these French historians always talk about, the, a total history, you know, combining um, climate data and information and economic information um, and so on. In a world where everything is agricultural history in a sense, the environmental story and the climatic change story has to be part of how this world works. That, doesn't, that shouldn't surprise anybody, <laughs> um, but sometimes it's a bit shocking for ancient historians. Yeah, absolutely. And so with this more holistic perspective, could you tell us a little bit about what your work has revealed about climate change in ancient history when you take when you take this new perspective or what are the sort of the big connections that you've uncovered so so far what we've worked on is taking this nature paper from 2015 michael siegel et al um, and the volcanic sequence there and um, doing work on connecting the series of volcanic eruptions the large eruptions that we see in the in the ice cores from antarctica and and um, in Greenland, and tying it to uh, now river behavior. It, it affects other places too, including the, the Euphrates River, which we're also working on. But the Nile River looks like a pretty sensitive place. And because we have such good documentation, relatively, from Egypt, we can, I think we can begin to tell a story of um, river behavior and shocks to the river behavior that are la lasting maybe sometimes a year, but uh, in some cases we're finding uh, up to a decade long, which is really significant. And to see what happens, what happens with grain prices, what happens with um, periods of, uh, of social um, unrest, um, for example. Um, it's not always, by the way, um, food crises or famines we're looking at. Sometimes, and the ancient texts tell us this, sometimes there's just fear and panic because the Nile doesn't flood um, and people get afraid. And they remember a time, this one famous text tells us, they remember a time when the Nile failed and there was massive famine. Will this happen again? So fear, which is kind of hard to quantify, but fear is an important part of the story, I, I think. And in a, in a world where the Nile is um, divine and the annual flood is divine, um, the whole world is kind of divinized uh, for um, ancient Egyptians. 
um, when you see changes like that, it's really significant to this population. So you can begin to get inside people's minds um, as well as think about um, things like food distribution or redistribution, what's happening to the harvest, what kind of crops are grown, what are the changes in crops that you see, what about the tax rates um, that are very well documented from Ptolemaic Egypt. Um, and you know, it's a more holistic picture of the entire society um, and, and how it's working and how these Ptolemaic kings, these post-Alexander the Great kings that come in and rule Egypt, um, how they adjust to this very ancient um, system, which is completely reliant on, on the Nile River and its annual flood. Yeah, it's interesting, too, to think about not only how people are reacting to environmental change, climate change in the moment, but what their memory of previous climate change mm -hmm. is like. So it sounds mm -hmm. like you, there's an, a unique opportunity here to think about memory and environmental history as well. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think so. You know, a lot of scientists, and here's a difference between the big difference between historians and scientists um, that we we talk about a lot. You know, scientists maybe want to see a me a mechanism or a single mechanism what explains things. Actually, societies, ancient societies included, are are complex things, um, and you can see the complexities um, much more clearer now than than we could even in the past um, here. So. Um, and, and the psychology, the group psychology, um, things like fear and panic um, and uh, mobilization um, around that um, is really interesting to sort of contemplate, I think, for the first time. This has not been done before. Um, usually these revolts, for example, are considered kind of nationalist uprisings. Egyptians despising their Greek overlords in the Ptolemaic period or later the Roman emperors um, and they revolt any chance they get. Well, no, it doesn't look that way. It actually looks like um, when the Nile River fails significantly, it reveals um, social tensions for sure um, and what, what the tax system um, is doing, but also the psychology of, of farmers seeing the river not flooding um, for sometimes two years in a row or even longer. Some of the documents even, even tell us this. Um, <laughs> And so the, you know, the climate record, the volcanic record, which is a bit of a weird record, you know, how does, how does a, an ice core from northern Greenland tell us anything about Egyptian history? Well, it turns out it, we think it does, actually, interestingly, in a, in a strange way. Um, but you can sort of see over the course of 300 years with that volcanic record what's going on in Egypt, I think a little bit, a little bit clearer. You know, and it's not always a dramatic story. It's not a story of collapse or even of resilience, um, you know, it's something more complex than that, um, I think. And it's nice to be able to look at a society this far back in time with a bit of detail, actually. Yeah, absolutely. You look at the, the distant past, like the more distant past definitely than, than I study, um, and you use these perhaps less easily accessible um, source materials, ice cores, papyri, things like, things like that. And I'm wondering how you make these topics and these methodologies accessible to students um, who you're teaching or other people who read it and encounter your work? It's an interesting thing to think about uh, and to contemplate, and it's a work in progress, I would say, for me. First of all, the undergraduate students love it. So this is great, um, mm -hmm. and that's the future. Um, and you know, I think Dag and I have talked before when last time I was down there about, you know, and you guys do this all the time down there, we need to retrain students. We need to train students differently. Um, to integrate uh, and to get used to science. I've taken my grad students out to the Desert Research Institute and Joe McConnell's ice core lab a couple of times now. 
you know, uh, and I've taken them to Iceland and Greenland last summer. Um, for example, it's weird for a Mediterranean ancient historian to go to Greenland, but it's, it's pretty cool. I got to say, um, you know, we need, we need to rethink how we're training, um, students, um, for sure. Um, but the undergraduates immediately love it and get it. Um, and so graduates are more conservative. They're thinking more about the job market and, you know, more conservative, um, uh, disciplinary boundaries, let's say, which still exist, which I, you know, you totally understand, of course. Um, but you just mentioned ice, you know, ice cores have all the fun, you know, I'm kind of jealous and I'm, I'm a climber by hobby. And so I, I, I know what it's about, but ice core people get to go to Antarctica and drill ice cores. It's, I mean, it's fantastic. Um, or Greenland, you know, and that's just, it's a great adventure story. That's, that's pretty easy to sell. Um, I think, um, integrating the two is much more challenging. Um, to integrate carefully the scientific data and the historical data, um, both pretty specialized fields. And by the way, both have a lot of uncertainty in them. Mm -hmm. um, and so you know, dealing with uncertainty, I think, is a pretty tough um, topic, for example. Um, but you can, you can tell stories anyway about what you think is going on, um, at least as a first pass, and then get comments and criticisms. And let's rethink. One of the things I think of the, the, the climate data forces ancient historians to deal with this to do to think better about historical processes mm -hmm. than ever before um historians who are used to just having all the documents that we have and the documents speak for themselves we don't need we don't need historical theories we don't need any comparison we don't need climate data certainly the texts tell the story we need to tell and i would say no they don't <laughs> that's one kind of uh, in, bit of information maybe um, but there's more to it than that. And so opening that up to conversation, you know, giving alternate uh, viewpoints um, of what happened in history, um, which you can do a lot from the period I work on. Here is the traditional story. Here is now our story. Let's talk about the differences um, and how we might um, improve um, the narrative and, and even the analysis, you know. So um, that's, you know, I think that's how we work here. Um, telling a general story to the, to the general public. I'm working on that too. I know you guys are down there as well. It's a, it's a, it's a, hard, it's a harder thing to do. You got to write differently, of course. But. Do you find that there's a, there's a real kind of thirst for stories of complexity, um, contingency maybe, um, that maybe go beyond that, you know, either society is resilient or it collapses, right? Like your work kind of yeah. is in that middle ground, right? That kind of tries yeah. to push these narratives, as you put it, mm -hmm. push them a little bit further. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like there's kind of a public thirst for that? I hope so. Mm -hmm. You know, then now that's the leap between does history matter for understanding our current global warming conditions? <laughs> you know, it, yes, and, yes and no, I would say. Um, but I think it's important to, to tell um, really good narratives as far back as we can about human societies um, and the complexities of them and the different kinds of societies that existed in the world. There's a, you know, we live in a very boring nation state world these days, but um, the pre-industrial world is much more interesting, I think, and more complex politically. Um, so I think it's important to, uh, to tell complex stories as far back in the past as we can go. I think that helps us understand better how we got where we are. Um, and it also highlights how distinctive our current situation is compared to the past. Mm -hmm. I, it, I, I think it is. Um, 
and there's you know just the general human human interest stories you know real humans dealing with um serious problems in in particular ways um that's interesting i think by itself i think it's also important in terms of just building um better history in general i think history matters a lot um but doing history well also matters and i think the climate story the paleoclimatology helps us there the challenge for all this is it ain't easy <laughs> to integrate climate data into historical narrative that's the fun i think that's fun but it is by no means easy. I was wondering if you could tell us about some of the collaborative projects that you've worked on where you do try to integrate these different forms of data um, and maybe also what you think those projects tell us about what climate historians and teams of people working on climate history might be looking at a couple of years down the line. Yeah, gosh. Uh, yeah, it's really fun. It's ongoing here. We have a small project that's funded by the National Science Foundation. We're almost halfway through the, uh, the four years of the funding, which is amazing. Um, and we have some great results. Um, you know, so um, this is a very, very different thing, as you guys know well, um, to work in teams. I think you have to. I think historians also have to work on their own. We, we, we still write monographs. We still do interpretive work. You still have to do that. That doesn't change. We just have to work harder now, um, because now we, we're working in teams with um, a whole series of, of experts um, on our project. And we have a, hopefully a paper coming out on the first century BC, which is really exciting um, with a lot of new work and identifying um, a new volcano um, and a really interesting ancient history story that I'm so excited about. Once the paper comes out, I, I shouldn't talk too much about it, but it's really cool stuff. But there, that, that paper is, there must be 20 authors on that thing. And, you know, ancient historians, so there's a couple of us, we're a minor part of that, that paper, really. And that's how it has to go, because you need such expertise in climate modeling, in TEFRA analysis, in um, ice core geochemistry, and the list goes on, um, and paleontology and speleothem um, work, uh, tree rings. Um, there's a whole series of uh, specialties um, that is you need on your team and you need to talk um, with them and to try to figure out to talk about what and where the problems are and you know to be on the same page um, literally um, in the work that's not easy to do um, because scientists have their own uh, motivations and their own way of working and each subfield of paleoclimatology works differently I'm mm -hmm. finding um, and historians work differently and text guys like me originally work differently than archaeologists do um, so there's a whole, there's a very different kinds of ontologies involved in this work. That's how it has to go. It's slow going. Uh, it can be contentious. In a few cases, I still think the ancient historians in the group are correct that the climate modeling, um, you can see some of the climate modeling is not doing what it should be doing. Come on, climate modelers. <laughs> Let's get the model better, we think, you know. Um, and, you, and you go back and forth like that um, and, and what things are possible and what isn't. And um, again, where the uncertainties are uh, and so on. That's um, it's humbling. It's exciting. Um, you end up telling less dramatic stories, I think, um, but, but I hope more real stories um, about what happens in the past, if that makes sense. You know, it's not collapse exclamation point, <laughs> this kind of thing. It's, I'm finding it's much more subtle, subtle than that. Um, 
in most cases. Um, so yeah, the exciting work uh, on the climate material, from my point of view, is um, the high resolution data, which is becoming um, um, more abundant each day. There's more information, it's hard to process it all. Um, the climate modeling is getting better, uh, which is really interesting. Um, kinds of uh, an additional thing to think about um, for uh, historians as well as for, for climate scientists. Um, and that's, that's coming um, increasingly, um, I think, um, for our own work too. We're, we were working with climate modelers at NASA GIS in New York on our own project and they're, it's fun to watch them. It's fun to talk about how they're thinking. We have a big meeting for the group on, on this Friday. We have a monthly meeting where we just sort of chit chat about what's going on, what people are working on with respect to the project. Um, so I, I'm expecting great things in another year or two there. Um, there's new statistical techniques, which are interesting um, that we'll hear about on Friday too. I'm tying together climate records and historical records, um, which is kind of, uh, it's technical, but it's an important way of tying information together. And we're talking about probabilities, mm -hmm. you know, rather than absolute certainties, this kind of thing. So there's a lot going on and it's, it's exciting. You know, the intimidating thing is, again, you guys know, um, and your listeners I'm sure also know well, um, is it's very hard for any one person to, to stay on top of the literature. We've got a, a bibliography on the Climate History Network that has like 5,000 publications. And that's just, I kind of feel like that's, I wouldn't say it's scratching the surface, but it's not comprehensive. So. <laughs> Emma's going to read all of them for her comps. It's going to be hey, great. Good, yeah. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> you can teach me. Um, and me. <laughs> yeah. So I want to take a different tack here. Um, so you're a leading scholar, but you're also, as you as you point out, an avid mountaineer climber. Um, do you feel like you've learned something while climbing mountains that you use in your work, or is that just a completely separate interest? Passion. Um, you know, it's funny how it's come together because climbing has sort of been a hobby for a while, um, and you know, all scholars end up writing about themselves, in one way or another. I think it's sort of true. Uh, so. It, it makes ice core, ice core work kind of immediately appealing because I've walked on a lot of glaciers, um, you know, and it's sort of now it's more meaningful to actually, you can see glaciers changing. Okay, so you can actually see climate change, climatic change in real time on any glacier you want to name. Um, but also this kind of sense of walking on history is interesting. And I've thought about that the last while that I'm actually walking on it. I'm walking on a library. I'm like stepping on books when I'm walking on a glacier. Um, this is an important archive that in a sense is burning. You know, it's like a library burning down. You have the sense of, you know, these, the glaciers are, contain such important um, historic information on, on uh, the climate of the earth. And it's precious. It's precious material. Um, and so, yeah, that's, I guess what... Does that get at answering your question? That's kind of what I think about it. I'm not sure it's, it's made me more sensitive, um, I think, and more appreciative of, you know, the pioneering work of Lonnie Thompson at Ohio State, for example, or Joe McConnell at the DRI, you know, to, to go out and figure out what, where, where do you core the best ice mm -hmm. um, and how do you do it, let alone, you know, going to Illimani in Bolivia or, 
or you know Kilimanjaro and actually coring on that ice that that requires some some climbing skill you know um, and some uh, you know uh, this kind of spirit of exploration that's an important part of um, climate science in general which I really appreciate you know the other thing is I go to the AGU every year now because I just think they're just a blast and I learn so much but I often feel like I'm among my people when I'm there mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that I don't do at a lot of ancient history meetings to be yeah, honest. I feel the same way exactly <laughs> you go to those meetings and go okay I'm kind of home I'm in my environment you know this yeah. is actually quite interesting and that's I don't know what to make of that other than um they've won you over <laughs> yeah this is what this is what I'm doing what I'm doing I've kind of found I have found my home um doing this work after what 30 years plus of sort of doing it mm-hmm. isn't that isn't that amazing it just makes me so grateful um, and appreciative. Is there a parallel between reaching the top of a mountain with a team and, you know, getting your article published in nature or what have you with <laughs> yeah. a team? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's teamwork. You know, it's yeah. teamwork. And um, it's not about ego. Um, mm-hmm. If it is, you're in trouble, you know. Um, and um, that's interesting, you know, that I love it that I'm on a, I'm on a big article that I'm author number 18. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's also because I'm an older, more senior scholar. I, I don't care, um, you know, if I'm lead author or author 18. It, it matters for young, younger scientists and, and scholars in, uh, and in history. And I understand, you know, and that requires sensitivity when you're publishing, you know, give someone else the lead or this kind of thing, a strategy. Uh, we thought about that on our project, too, that sometimes the climate models are going to write their own articles or maybe we're the last or the middle author, whatever, or we're not even on a paper. Um, it, it, it doesn't matter. The work is the most important thing. So a sense of accomplishment um, in both cases, uh, summiting a mountain, actually getting off a mountain, having a cheeseburger in the bar after climbing is, you know, the, when you're ended um, <laughs> on, a, on a climb. Um, yeah. You, you feel like that was amazing and couldn't have done it without you and, and, and hard climbs could not have done it without great guides. Um, very skilled guides, right? So it makes you humble. It, it's about it's about uh, the process in both cases. Yeah, that's a nice uh, analogy, Dag. Um, I think they're kind of you can make them related to each other. That's in both cases, you're happy you didn't die, I guess, right? <laughs> in, in the yeah, you didn't die. You didn't fall <laughs> in a crevasse. Um, yeah. Um, yep. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so. Uh, Joe, anyone who follows you on Twitter will know that you're politically active. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> uh, Apologies. <laughs> well, very much in line with my political sentiments. Um, okay. So no need to apologize to me. But okay. you know, in your view, is it important for, for historians, you know, especially you know, for historians of past environments or people who are active in environmental research, is it important uh, for them to be politically active now? And yeah. Yeah. Why or why not? Yeah, no, no doubt. I think I think everybody everybody has to has a stake in this. Everybody has to um, speak out. Um, I think there's no middle ground. Um, we have to. I think we have to mobilize um, everybody. We have to change behavior. It's not just individuals saying I'm not going to eat beef anymore or I'm going to have an electric car. That's great, you know. But we, we have to, as a society, as a, as a world, which is even harder, of course, to mobilize, um, find solutions and take action like yesterday. Um, I, do think it's, I do think it's urgent. 
um, whether, you know, I, maybe we'll survive, maybe we'll be fine um, in, in North America, you know, but the other parts of the world are not going to be, um, even now. Um, look at the story even today in The Guardian about the lo- second locust infection or invasion mm-hmm. in East Africa. My goodness. Um, so if you care about humanity, you know, if you care about the species, if you care about the environment, I think you have to really, um, really take a stand and, um, and, and get involved. Um, you know, the way Bill McKibben has been, and the 350.org organization, you know, has been really um, good about, and there are other groups too. Yeah, I think, I think you do have to take action. If you're an historian and, you, and you're working on environmental history or climate history, yeah, then you're, you're obviously in the game um, in a sense. You can, you can see it. You can see it. It, it plays a role in some ways um, all the way back to the last ice age um, and before. So um, this, this idea that I think some people have that we, we, we're now living outside of nature, that we can just order our fish from Amazon, um, you know, without any consequence, without any even knowledge about where the fish is coming from, uh, for example. That's just um, not a good way to live. Here, here antiquity is really good lesson that ancient peoples lived in nature. Um, no way to avoid it. And there's lessons there about living in balance. Um, you know, even if, even if it's not dire, even if the models are over-exaggerating um, things, the solution is to live in balance with nature. Um, and to be cautious, even if the models are not accurate enough yet, that doesn't mean we should just light the earth on fire. It, I think it means we should be super cautious and tread lightly. We should um, probably err on the side of caution, right? <laughs> yeah, we should. Yeah, we should actually tread planet. lightly on the earth. That's always a good way to live uh, in, in any circumstance, right? That should be a reminder of that um, always. And then you look at demography you know, 9 billion or whatever the, you know, whatever the population is. Is that the correct figure? I mean, it's an amazing number. Well, it's, I think it's almost eight, but correct me if I'm, something. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot, you know. <laughs> um, in, in, my, in my period of history, maybe um, 100 million on the planet or something like that. Mm. So, you know, there's differences. Um, but that uh, the demographic change is uh, really significant. Again, everything suggests, even if you don't care about what the climate models are telling us and what, the, what 2C, 2 degrees centigrade should be telling us, we still should be living in balance with nature. And we should, we should all get out on a mountain, um, in my view, <laughs> and, and appreciate nature. Um, and if you do that, then I think it's easier to, to be more cautious on, on how you live, you know? Yeah. So getting away from the, the issue of politics, however important that may be, and I'm actually on, on board with you. It used to be, you know, that uh, we would always kind of emphasize when we, when we talk to people like, yeah, if you just want to study for the purpose of pure curiosity, if you want to study environmental issues for that purpose and not get politically engaged, you know, that's okay. But uh, it's reaching the point now where that becomes harder and harder uh, to say, of course. But, but shifting away from that, um, and you kind of mentioned this already, but what are you working on right now that that most excites you? Maybe we'll we'll end on that positive note. <laughs> ah, well, well. Besides our project um, and this big paper that's coming out, stay tuned. I hope it's out in another month or six weeks. Um, 
I'm really, I'm excited about that because it's going to open up some interesting things. Um, I'm working on a really big book, probably too big a book on just on climate and history, mm -hmm. you know, and my own take on things and trying to figure out what are the stories I want to tell there. That's fun because there's a million stories. Um, I'm, I'm excited about it um, to try to figure out from just my own reading and, and learning um, how this stuff kind of matters um, from my point of view. Um, how do I tell the stories? What are the stories I'm telling? Um, what are the new things I want to tell? Um, how do I tell stories about my own experience inside an ice core geochemistry lab, <laughs> for example, and what that kind of stuff tells us about um, climactic change? You know, so it's kind of a, it's a personal journey, I think. That's a journey I've been on for six years, seven years or so, and that's a story, the stories I want to tell. So kind of a personal sort of thing. I never thought I'd be doing formally environmental history, um, <laughs> but you know, um, here we are. It's an intimidating field, as you guys know. It's um, so big. Um, there's so many things going on. Um, but I'm excited about. You can see. I can't show you my the floor in my study. <laughs> the books and the articles are are piled up like it's like a mountain range in, in my study actually there is actually a mountain range in in the background here that we can see for the for the for the oh, record uh, yeah. joe has a virtual background where there's a bear there's mountains there's there's all kinds of stuff going on in the virtual background <laughs> <laughs> yeah um so that's yeah that's uh these are the things kind of the, the specific project um that we're working on and then kind of my general take uh, as an historian my, you know my kind of views on how exciting and how important um, the field is um, and why it matters for um, our current um, predicament. Mm -hmm. um, you know, why, why everyone should be interested in reading, um, reading history and the so new stories that, that, um, that people are telling, including you guys. That sounds fantastic. I, I think there's a special need for um, a different kind of climate history of, of the ancient mm -hmm. world, maybe in particular, that reaches a, a mm -hmm. broad audience. Um, mm -hmm. Because I think often, I mean, as you know, I think we met at a workshop dedicated to collapse, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, or at least we had some drinks at that at that workshop. Um, yeah. And uh, I think very often journalists, ordinary people, you know, when we think about the ancient world, we so often think about, you know, this society fell apart, this one, this one. And we definitely need, I think, more complex narratives that, that you know, reach a broad public. And mm. as you know, often the best way to do that is to kind of tell your own story alongside the story of, of past society. So hopefully we can have you back on when that book comes up. <laughs> yeah. I look forward to it already. Fantastic. Well, thank you uh, so much thank for joining guys. us. And we look forward to following your work. Thanks very much. It's been a great pleasure. To learn more about climate change in the past, present, and future, visit historicalclimatology.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at ClimateHist. Thanks for listening to the Climate History Podcast. <laughs>